Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kellen, are we past the point in the podcast where I have to do a formal introduction every week? I guess, but that means you won't be saying, hey, welcome to Breaking Down Collapse, which I just learned, I had this big realization of just how clever you are, (laughs) because I didn't ever realize it's Breaking Down colon Collapse. Like when you invited me to the podcast, you said, hey, it's called Breaking Down Collapse, but I didn't realize how clever that is. Like... You are breaking down the concept of collapse for me so I can learn it. But collapse also is when things break down. (laughs) Did you know you were doing that? Uh, Yeah, I did. (laughs) Yeah, I actually struggled to find a name. I spent a few hours like jotting down ideas and I was really frustrated thinking I wasn't going to be able to come up with anything. Every time I came up with something that I thought was original, I would like Google it and that already existed. And so when that one came up, I kind of knew I had a winner there. Well, I hope all the listeners out there appreciate it as much as I do, because I thought that subtle little nuance was extremely clever. Appreciated. Thanks. So if you had to recap last week's episode, kind of in a simple sentence or two, what would you say? Yeah, I can take a shot at it. And maybe this is oversimplification, but what I remember is that Earth has a carrying capacity. There's a limit to how many people can be on Earth. We've already overshot that. And... No matter what we do from here on out, we're essentially doomed. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, limits to growth. We went over the computer modeling, and it basically just said you can try and fix everything that you want, but eventually something still goes wrong and you still collapse. So while last week we talked about the fact that we will collapse, this week we're going to talk more about what that collapse actually looks like, what it would be like to live through it, and also the mechanics of how it happens. Which I am so excited for because I feel like 
every one of these episodes has been necessary, but the whole time I'm like, tell me what it actually is going to be like. You can say they've been boring. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I won't be that harsh. (laughs) No, but it's true. Like the first, the first several episodes have been background information and it's hard to make that entertaining, but it is really important because I think if you listen to this episode as a standalone without having listened to the first four, you'd be really confused. And so with that being said, if you just did a Google search for what is collapse and it came up with this episode of the podcast, go back and listen to the first four. Make sure that you understand the background information before listening to this one, because this will bring it all together. So this is called catabolic collapse. There are lots of different types of collapse. Collapse can happen in a lot of different ways. This is one specific mechanism of collapse that I find to be most compelling and that I think is the most certain to happen. And by the way, much of the information around catabolic collapse that we'll talk about today comes from a man named John Michael Greer, who is an author with some amazing books and resources that go much more into depth with this concept. So I'll link to those in the episode description if you'd like to learn more. And to explain it, I'm going to use a story as an example. And Kellen, I've chosen you to be the main character of the story. Oh boy. So let's say you're an inventor and you come up with this amazing product called the Gizmo. And because it's so successful, you become filthy freaking rich. So far, this story sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you're going to hate the ending. So you buy a multi-million dollar home. You get a loan on some super fancy cars. You put a pool in the backyard. You go on lavish vacations. You're loving life. And you, you think it's okay because I've got the income coming in to pay for it. But you're dumb and you don't really put any money away. You don't invest in the future at all. Well, eventually, you marry a trophy wife and have trophy children who get accustomed to this sort of lifestyle that you've introduced them to. And to keep your wife and kids happy, you're constantly buying them new stuff. Well, in time, the business hits some struggles because the raw materials that you need put into the gizmo increases in price, making it more costly for you to make your gizmos. Well, the market won't allow you to sell the gizmo for more money than you're currently doing it. The customers won't buy it, which means that you're making less profit for each one that you sell and your income goes down. All right, but you'd already promised your wife and kids a vacation, and your kid's about to turn 16, you told him you'd buy him a car for his 16th birthday, and your wife threatens to leave you if you don't follow through. And being the good husband that you are, you go on the vacation and you buy your kid a car with a loan. And the next month, the margins on your gizmos have decreased to such a degree that you realize you can't buy anything extra. So your family keeps demanding things, but your income keeps decreasing, so how do you handle it? I imagine for anybody who's wealthy, It's really challenging if you ever have to decrease your style of living. I guess even if you're not wealthy, that's challenging. But if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. So either you have to get on a tighter budget or you're just going to keep sinking further and further into debt. Right. So you're going to go the budget route. Oh, your wife's not going to like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I already go the budget route. I don't know that my wife loves that. (laughs) Okay, so you stopped adding more, but you still have to pay the pool guy, the butler, the pest control guy, the nanny, the chef, utilities, your mortgage, your debt payments. There's a ton of stuff you still have to pay. Well, when the next month rolls around, you realize that your margins have decreased even more to the point that you can't even pay all of your expenses in your household. So the banks aren't going to lend you any more money. You can't get another job. So at this point, really, your only options are either start selling some of your stuff or let go some of your household staff like the chef. So as time goes on, your margins decrease more and more. You have to let more and more people go. When one day you realize you've got a small leak in your roof and the cost to take care of that leak is the same as your mortgage. And you have to choose either the leak or the mortgage. 
what do you go for? Oh, the mortgage, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, right? All right, so at this point, you let the yard maintenance guy go months ago, and your yard is five acres of grass, and you don't know how to work the industrial mower you bought. So you sell the mower, but the grass starts to overgrow and get taken over by weeds. Without the chef and the butler, your house is becoming a mess, and you don't know how to cook, so you keep selling stuff so that you can go out to eat. Well, the next month rolls around, and with your income still dwindling as the cost to make your gizmos increases, you realize you can't pay all your utilities. Keeping the AC on in this mansion is super expensive, and you can't foot the bill. Power company shuts your lights off, a huge rainstorm comes, and there's a downpour. Because you didn't fix the leak in your house, a couple of the rooms flood, including your office, which held all of your work equipment. In order to keep your business going, you're going to have to replace them, but that means your margins will get even worse and your income continues to fall. It's just this downward spiral for you. To save money earlier, you stopped paying your homeowner's insurance, which means they're not going to cover any of it either. (laughs) Really responsible guy, Kellen. Finally, you can't afford to pay the mortgage and your home is in utter disrepair. The bank forecloses, you declare bankruptcy, the board kicks you out of the business, you're forced to move in with your mother, who never gives up an opportunity to loudly question how she managed to raise such a failure. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man, you suck. Jeez, take it easy. This is an imaginary story. Well, (laughs) you imaginary suck then. (laughs) I don't know how you could have let this happen. Anyway, all right. So what I've just described is... A very simplistic version of a person going through their own catabolic collapse. Complex societies, just like you in our example, have what are called maintenance costs of capital. So just like you had to maintain and upkeep all the moving parts of your lavish household, pay the butler, upkeep the lawnmower, maintain the home, society has to maintain all of its capital as well. So capital is pretty much just any moving part of society, which we talked about with complexity. So basically what that means is any physical asset So grocery stores, machines, our fields, food, our water plants, recycling plants, human capital like our labor force, our scientists, our inventors, social capital like hierarchies in our economic systems, and our infrastructure, so roads, bridges, dams, or government programs like the military, welfare, political systems, and our legal systems. So all of those things encompass capital, and they all require a maintenance cost in order for them to keep running the way they were designed to. Just like you paid your maintenance costs with money in the story, society pays its maintenance costs with resources. So that could be energy, arable land, topsoil, biodiversity, fresh water. Those are all different types of resources that we pay our maintenance cost of capital with. So we have to be able to take available resources and produce them in a way to support capital and pay those maintenance costs. Our economic growth requires that we are constantly not only paying the current maintenance cost, but also that we have an excess amount used to grow the economy, which in turn increases the total maintenance cost, if that makes sense. As we add more goods into the economy, we, we create more capital, and that requires us to pay more money to upkeep it. Yeah, so far this all makes sense, because previously we talked about how complexity makes things kind of fragile, right? Like if one cog in the big system goes out, everything's in trouble. And also we talked about how we have this ever-increasing appetite for more resources and more energy. Yep, that's right. And our society actually requires growth in order to survive. We'll talk more about why growth is required next episode, but without growth, our economy actually fails. So just like in the story, your wife and children demanded to be able to buy more things, the vacation, the car, 
Um, they expected to be able to buy whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it and always have an increase. Well, we talked in the past about how our global economy is growing at 3.3% annually. It means we're adding compound interest to our maintenance costs, and that results in the doubling that we spoke about every 22 years. Yeah. So we've already discussed several of the issues that we face with a few of our resources needed to pay the maintenance costs, specifically energy. If in the early 1900s, the EROEI of oil was 100, then there were 99 barrels of oil left over because it cost one to extract and produce it all. So part of that 99 barrels of oil would have gone towards the maintenance cost of capital, and the rest would have been the excess that went towards helping the economy grow. When EROEI of energy production decreases... What that really means is that even though the demand for energy is increasing, the marginal amount we were able to produce decreases. So if the EROEI of oil today is 10, then the same amount of work as before only allows me one-tenth as much oil. But our exponential growth requires even more oil, so I have to work 10 times harder in order to keep paying the maintenance cost of capital and to provide any excess for growth. Okay, that was a lot. You went through that kind of fast. But I think that makes sense that... Not only are you getting less output, but it requires more input. That's right. So you have to work many times as hard to get not only the same amount as you got before, but we have to also be producing more because we need more. Yeah, that makes sense. And so this was represented by you in the story who had marginally less and less money left over from your business, but your family was demanding more and more to a point where that got impossible to do. There was only so much income you could produce from your business on a monthly basis, and there is only so much oil and other energy sources that we can produce on a monthly basis. So as your income decreased, you started to budget, you stopped growing. In our society, that would cause what is called economic stagnation. Basically means we would stop growing, unemployment rates would rise, and it would result in recessions, a lot like what we've seen right now during COVID and in 2008. So maybe you'll cover this later I know you said you want to go into like economic stuff later, mm -hmm. but in your example, in the story about me, where I suck, it's okay, <laughs> you can say it. Yeah, where I imaginary suck. Um, you said that the bank wouldn't give me any more loans. When it comes to at least like the national economy, it seems like the U.S. has been out of money for a long time, but we just keep going further and further into the deficit. And so far, it seems like we just keep getting like we're in the trillions and there's no consequence. Like there's no bank that says, sorry, you can't have any more. When does that or how does that catch up to us? Yeah, that's a good question. And this is specifically what we are going to talk about next week. Debt is a whole thing in, in and of itself. But basically, our current course takes us towards destroying the value of the dollar. The dollar is tied to energy. Energy is basically the anchor tied around our neck and then we're thrown into the ocean the dollar goes with us. And so money basically just has value when other people say it does. And if other countries don't value the dollar anymore, then no one's going to offer to take on debt for us. Yeah, cool. Well, not cool. <laughs> right. And that that's probably still really foggy, but we'll, we'll go, we will go into more detail about that. Okay, so at this point, if we were looking at a chart where we're growing economically and then there's a peak and a decrease... We're to the point right now where we're at the peak. We can't keep growing. The EROEI basically means we're barely able to meet our maintenance costs, but we're not able to continue that growth, which causes, um, like I said, economic troubles and recession. But the question is, what does it look like to go back down the other side of that? Or basically for our complex society to simplify itself, like we've talked about. 
So I've mentioned before that there are so many different things that could cause collapse and so many ways that it could happen. All the different resources that we use are necessary to pay our maintenance costs. And it's not like we would have to hit a peak on each one of those types of energy. It really only takes one. Whether that's natural gas or coal or arable land or oil, if we don't have enough of one of those things, it's enough to start our path down collapse, like we saw in Limits to Growth. And again, we don't have to deplete any one resource either. It's just that the rate at which we produce them has to be less than the demand from society. So I'm just going to give one really simplified example. The reality of collapse is that it will likely be way more dynamic and involved. But for our purposes here, this will explain the process well. All right, so we're going to use the example of hitting a peak in energy production. And because it's what we've talked about so much, we're going to say oil. So as oil production decreases due to lower EROEI, eventually it'll hit a point where we're barely able to break even with the maintenance costs of capital. At that point, energy prices would start to skyrocket, meaning that the price of everything would skyrocket. We've talked about in the energy episode, the cost of gas would go up, the cost of flying on a plane would increase, the cost of just general goods, and probably the most important thing is that the cost of food would increase pretty dramatically. We already have 2 billion people that are food insecure in the world and nearly a billion that are considered hungry. And this is all due to poverty levels. So if the cost of food and everything else is increasing, the amount of people unable to afford food would increase also. Especially because in this scenario that we're talking about, people are already losing their jobs due to a stagnant economy because of recession. So this would hit hardest in the poorest nations, but the U.S. would surely feel it as well. Today, there are nearly 40 million people that are considered food insecure in the U.S. So just imagine if that number increased to like 150 million. That's almost half of the population of the United States. And then with tens of millions of Americans facing an actual food crisis, meaning they have the potential for starving. And the government has two choices. They can either solve this problem or they can ignore it. Just like you had the choice to fix the patch in your roof or let it be. And so we're going to go down like a rabbit hole of a bunch of different choices and possibilities. But for the sake of this argument, we're going to say that the government chooses to solve this problem. So Kellen, if you were the U.S. government, we'll call you President Kellen, what would you do to solve this problem of people not being able to afford food? Oh, I don't know. That's tough. It seems like the government's response in a crisis is to do a stimulus package or something like that. But if we are so dependent on oil, and that's what we're running out of, unless we can come up with some crazy innovations in energy, I feel like there's nothing we really can do. Yeah, it's a great point. So stimulus packages, increase in welfare, that's the type of thing when people are suffering that the government tries to do to fix the problem. Let's say in this case that the government says, if people can't afford food, we need to expand food stamps. Basically, the government's going to cover the cost of feeding its people. So in order to do that, the government needs to produce more food. And because they're going to be the ones covering the cost, since people can't afford it, they have two options. The government can either continue to produce food the way that they're doing it now, utilizing a huge amount of fossil fuels at an ever-increasing cost. Or the second option, like you just said, is come up with a new innovation. Basically, a new way to grow food that maybe doesn't require so much fossil fuel usage. Both of those options would require a huge financial investment. So let's talk about money first. Money for the food stamp program would have to come from somewhere. And we'll talk next episode about why that money can't just be printed. But for now, just trust me on that. 
it'll need to come from somewhere else. So one option is like increased taxes, which would essentially just hurt the people who are already suffering. So not really an option. Um, or that money can be taken from other government programs. So essentially, like you had to look at your budget as our terrible homeowner. The government has to then look at their budget and say, how can we move some money around to make sure we have enough to pay for this program? So the government can take money from existing programs like Medicare, education, Homeland Security, or the upkeep of infrastructure, like our roads, our bridges, drinking water. What's interesting is the U.S. currently has an average report card rating of D plus on our infrastructure. That's an assessment done by the American Society of Civil Engineers every four years. And it essentially shows that we're already in a state of disrepair with our infrastructure and nearly $5 trillion are needed to go into the infrastructure in order to improve it right now. If we have to take more money away from infrastructure, you can imagine the danger that could cause. But nonetheless, people are dying and the government is set on fixing the problem. So just like you were willing to sell your personal items to keep your home, the government won't really have much of a choice but to take away from the critical parts of its infrastructure. So if the government decides to increase food production in the energy-intensive way that we're currently doing it, then it's not just money that they're going to take from other programs, but resources as well. Energy that would normally go into maintaining infrastructure or building new roads, for example, now might have to be shifted to the new food problem as well. If the government decides to innovate a new solution that doesn't require as much fossil fuel usage, they would need to do just an insane amount of research and development, right? And they need to do it fast. Yeah, totally. And now that I think about it, there'd have to be multiple innovations. Because even if you can produce food with less oil or less energy, there's still all the distribution, there's still all the cost of like manufacturing it and processing it. So as I think it through, there'd have to be a lot of innovation. And I also remember when we were talking about it before, that we've already kind of grabbed the low-hanging fruit when it comes to innovation. And now... Anytime we're going to innovate, it requires a lot more resources. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Exactly. So this is where the diminishing returns on technological advancement comes back into play because innovation is meant to solve problems. We've got lots of problems here. We're trying to solve them. But the innovation cost to create new innovations now is extremely high. And so we're already low on resources, and you're saying we now have to pull even more resources in order to do this R&D. As you're describing this, it is pretty terrifying, because when you talked about the example of me as a crappy homeowner, like, big deal if the lawn gets overgrown, or big deal if the paint is chipping, 
or if the house isn't as clean and organized as it was before. But when you're talking about like our system of operating as a society, it feels like there's not a whole lot of places we can take away from. Yeah, exactly. There might be a little bit of wiggle room to move things around, but really we're eroding away at the foundation of a really complex system, just asking for it to fall. Back to our example, um, doing this sort of innovation would require you know, taking innovators like scientists and engineers and others away from other industries and sectors. So the best minds wouldn't any longer be working on curing cancer and preventing pandemics. They're now working on fixing the food problem, which in turn just exposes us to more vulnerabilities. So once we innovated and came up with this great solution, well, that's just the first part of it. And now we have to actually implement it. The implementation of a huge program like that would likely take way more people, way more resources, which again are going to have to be taken away from other sectors. So no matter which direction the government chose to go, and honestly, I think they'd probably end up doing both because they know that the innovation is going to take a long time. In the meantime, they're going to ramp up production. So really, we're having double the costs of resources during that time. Um, the cost would be ginormous, and the result is that it would likely cause more problems in other parts of the society. If we've taken from Medicare, well, now older people and people with disabilities are in danger, not getting what they need. We've taken from education, so the next generation of innovators and laborers are now less educated and less prepared. We've taken from homeland security, so we're more susceptible to outside attack. And we've taken from infrastructure, so our bridges fall apart, our dams are failing, our water isn't drinkable, and our highways are undrivable. So to fix all of these problems that are now popping up would require, yet again, more innovation and more diversion from other resources. So you can kind of see the cycle that we're headed down. Yeah, totally. So over time, we get rid of more and more programs. We erode more and more away from our foundation. And eventually, we basically just eat ourselves alive from the inside out. And just like you stopped maintaining your home and it fell into utter disrepair, um, you know, we just mentioned overgrown with weeds and chipped paint. We've got flooded, moldy rooms and bug infestations until eventually you, you lost your home. Unfortunately, solving our problems in a catabolic collapse situation just ends up creating more. And in the end, the natural result of catabolic collapse is that we'll continue to fall until we land somewhere below the carrying capacity. And last episode, we mentioned that the carrying capacity of Earth without fossil fuels is about 10% of what it is today. So like I mentioned, peak energy is just one thing that could start us down the collapse pathway. Um, in reality, it could be the peak of any resource or the accumulation of enough problems happening in a given time when our resource availability is starting to become even remotely scarce. We've talked about how many people still view renewables as the technology that will save us, but the book Limits to Growth showed us that it doesn't matter. Even if we have virtually unlimited resources, we're going to grow ourselves right off a cliff. Climate change, which we've barely touched on at all, and which we'll be diving into in a few episodes, poses enough dangers and will cause enough problems all by itself that it would ensure our collapse as well. So no matter how collapse begins, the process and the result of catabolic collapse is the same regardless. So at what point in all of this do we, as you've mentioned before, start eating the rich? <laughs> That's a good question. So actually, I think that someone living through this is not going to view collapse as an apocalyptic scenario or as the end of the world. We've been trained to view these types of things as purely economical or political. It would look probably like another Great Depression. And so the nation and the world would be up in arms about Whose fault is it? 
People love to choose a scapegoat, someone they can blame all their problems on. And often the blame is placed on politicians who are then really great at shifting the blame and mobilizing their followers to blame other political parties or ethnic religious groups or other countries. And so we see that already today, you know, border walls, xenophobia, racism against minorities like Hispanics, African-Americans, Middle Easterners, and even like with the coronavirus, Asians. Political parties hate each other to the point of shooting each other dead in the street and people blame the LGBTQ community or scientists. Or worse of all, they come up with some conspiracy theory to put a mystical name behind the problem and then raise up so-called heroes to come save the day. And that's how we get groups like QAnon, which are living dangerously outside of reality. We don't look, like you said earlier, to the root of the problem. We just look to blame any and everyone else for our misery. And so to answer your question, the rich are also a group that many people will look to to blame for why we are where we are. If the rich hadn't consumed so much, if the rich hadn't been so greedy, if they hadn't driven such a disparity in wealth, then maybe we wouldn't be here. And I see it all over. And I'm not even necessarily saying that I disagree, but people say that this is the fault of the ultra-wealthy who don't care about anything but themselves. Yeah, I've actually seen that all over the place with like the pandemic. There's all these claims, and they're accurate, that billionaires have increased their wealth by however many billions while all the rest of the population is suffering. So I can see how people would just get more and more bitter and weaponize any sort of data like that. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, you know, people want to blame somebody. And in the end, to me, it really doesn't matter who we blame because blaming is not going to fix the issue, at least not once we're in it. I think there are changes that could be made now, especially with how the rich are taxed, the ultra rich, that could relieve some of the burden that the poor are suffering. But unfortunately, in our political landscape, I just don't think we're going to see that happen because really the government is run by corporations and therefore by the ultra wealthy. So the process I described in this example didn't really include any political drama or any scapegoats or anything like that. So the politicians did everything right within their power and it still led to collapse. In reality, the self-preservation of politicians would likely lead to choices being made during a collapse that would speed it up and amplify it. Even today, we can already see the potential for violence and hate caused by rhetoric and political divisiveness in our two-party system. So just imagine that being exacerbated by the type of unsolvable existential crisis faced in catabolic collapse. Wars have already been fought over oil, and wars have been fought over much less. Genocide is something we hear about like in foreign nations, but never really consider in our own. I think that the pressures of trying to regain control over an uncontrollable situation will likely lead to many dark and unthinkable missteps. Yeah, I've actually thought about that a lot as we've gone through these topics. Because one of the scariest parts to me about all of this is how people will react when they get desperate. Like historically, it seems like that's when things get really nasty is when people are in absolute desperation for themselves or for their families. So that kind of leads me to a question that perhaps you're going this direction already. I don't know, but you've talked about like this system at large and what everything looks like on a large scale. But if you zoom in, I'm trying to still piece together. What does this look like for me in my life? Yeah. Good point. So when we, in the first episode, you would ask like, is this something that I'm going to see 
in my lifetime? And I said, well, yeah, I, I definitely think your lifestyle will change. And I'll be honest that because I didn't want to scare you away, I stated that kind of softly. <laughs> um, I, I definitely think that in your lifetime, you'll probably see more than just your lifestyle change. The timeline from beginning to end of this whole process would depend largely on actions taken during it by people, by politicians, that sort of thing, mixed with a ton of other unknown variables. So there's really no way to predict like how long this whole process takes. And like we've already talked about, we don't know exactly when it's going to start. But from beginning to end, collapse could take decades or it could take just years. But I believe that during that time period, we're going to experience catastrophes followed by economic disaster, followed by moments of relief, followed by more disaster and more economic troubles. And depending on where you live and how much money you have, you know, daily life could change in a lot of different ways. So the whole thing would kind of start with a normal recession, kind of like what we're going through now. There's a stock market crash, there's high unemployment, people are kind of uncertain about things. But as those prices increase dramatically due to energy shortages, unnecessary goods would start to disappear. So the sort of luxuries that we've gotten used to being able to just walk into any store and buy. If I can barely afford to eat, why am I going to buy candy or fast food? I'm probably not. And so when people stop buying that stuff, the manufacturers are going to stop making it. And instead, they'll shift to start making things that people are buying. So like food staples. And really only the rich would have access to the little luxuries that are left being made. So this could be things like, you know, luxury food or clothing or accessories. You basically just imagine the grocery stores being like a tenth of the size that they are now and carrying necessities like bread and flour and pinto beans. And clothing stores would sell shoes and pants and shirts, but mostly just for utility, not really for style anymore. After that, healthcare and welfare programs would probably start to disappear, so the death rate would increase as people stopped having access to those essential services. And eventually, more and more people would be left without just their basic needs being met, and they'd have like nowhere to really turn to get them. Energy costs are soaring, so people would probably stop paying their utility bills. If it's between keeping the lights on and eating, I'm probably going to choose to eat. And that would result in utility companies going under. The electrical grid is actually really fragile, and it relies on the thousands of different utility companies that run it to each be doing their part to keep it all together. So if companies start going under, it's going to cause a lot of problems with the grid, and there, there's actually potential for you know, rolling blackouts to become common with power you know, coming on and going off for different weeks at a time, and eventually it could go out and just not come back. And the same would be true with like natural gas availability and water. So when the utility problem becomes that critical, the economy is just in shambles. Most people are probably at this point not working. Are banks enforcing foreclosures, right? Is there like mass homelessness? The debt problem, which we already talked about, we're going to discuss more next episode, will likely cause banks to go under completely. And basically that would cause a complete implosion of the financial system. So without the dollar and basically no money existing anymore, people have no incentive to work. Who's going to go work at the power plant or go work at the water treatment facility if they're not being paid to do that anymore and they have their you know starving families at home to worry about? So you can kind of see how with the last example that I used of collapse, we're kind of following that same path but from the perspective of someone who's living in it. 
So kind of like what you said, now people are jobless and starving and what do they do? How do they react? You know, is there more violence and gangs or are communities coming together to help each other? Or are there riots and revolutions? I think all of those things are probably happening and I think it just depends on where you live. So this brings up a question in my mind and it's not really something that I had thought of up until this point, but are there people who want this to happen? Are there like certain agendas that would benefit from a collapse taking place and they would love to push it forward faster? Yeah. So, I mean, when you think of like the discord being sown in the U S and how a lot of that comes from disinformation from Russia, for example, you know, Putin would love to see a local scale collapse of the U S for sure, because we would be weakened to a point where, um, either they could become more of a global superpower or, you know, if they were to, I don't know what Russia's plan is, but, but when you talk about a catabolic collapse on a large scale, it's a global problem. So that wouldn't really benefit Russia if they're going to fall just as far and hard as we are. Right. So from a like foreign enemy power standpoint, I don't think that this is the right solution for them if they're wanting to make a power play. But there are individuals who have their own agenda for having the collapse happen. So, for example, like the Unabomber, his whole manifesto was basically talking about like how screwed up society is and how we're basically just asking for a collapse, right? And he kind of put himself out there as like this martyr for that cause. And even just for me, like on Reddit, you know, looking at through the post, you see a lot of people who are like wanting collapse to happen sooner rather than later. And some of the reasoning behind that maybe noble in a way, because they're saying if collapse could happen sooner, we would stop using fossil fuels sooner and we'd be leaving a better planet for the people who survive collapse later. If we wait too long and climate change basically destroys the earth, then there's not really much of a chance for survival later on for anyone. But I mean, collapse is not going to be fun by any means for anyone. And if there is someone who thinks collapse is going to be a movie where they're out there, you know, Mad Max style surviving. Like that's just not how it's going to be at this point. Like it's just about survival. Each person is struggling to make sure that they have food and water and shelter necessary to preserve their lives and the lives of their families. So many people have a differing view of what rock bottom of collapse looks like. You know, is it a total chaos with neighbors, killing each other for food and packs of militias basically ruling their own territories, you know, or is it neighbors who are coming together to help each other survive and look out for each other? I think personally that there's going to be plenty of both depending on where you live and basically how you've prepared yourself for it in the end, no matter how long it takes or how we get there, eventually society is going to hit rock bottom, which will just be a point below the carrying capacity. And again, I believe this will be different for each area and each community you know, with government in shambles or non-existent, having lost its legitimacy completely, it'll likely be up to each community to care for itself. And so a community who works together is going to have a higher carrying capacity than a community that is continuing to rip itself apart. So parts of the world will dwindle to nothing, while other parts of the world will fall below the carrying capacity and then work together at a point of equilibrium to maintain themselves moving forward. I want to do a, an episode in the future and probably not too far in the future about how we can individually prepare ourselves best for a collapse. And sorry if you're expecting that episode to be like prepper style. It's not. I have a different take, I think, on the best way to, to prepare for this. But I think that when we get to rock bottom, we may not know 
for sure that we're there yet. Because as things start to level out for those that are left, it may just appear to them to be another temporary reprieve like they had experienced multiple times on the way down the collapse path. But in time, they'll realize that things are stable. They've been granted the opportunity to start over. And hopefully, they'll do so not making the same mistakes that society made the first time. We can only hope. (laughs) That's right. So what do you think about what we talked about today? Man, I've got a lot of thoughts. I feel like this was really good for me. I've actually had this kind of lingering question in my mind. I've been thinking like a lot of what we're facing right now is unprecedented. We're seeing a lot of crazy things taking place in the world. But people before us probably thought the same thing. When previous pandemics have hit, I'm sure there were people who were saying, this is the end of the world. Or even like when World War II was taking place, people probably thought like, this is it. This is how everything goes down. And so I thought to myself, like, why didn't collapse happen then? Or if collapse didn't happen then, why are we so confident that it is going to happen in the future? But I think the past few conversations we've had, including this one, make me realize it really comes down to resources. We had resources then. We're running out of resources now. And that's all compounded by how much more complex our system is. Is that correct? Yeah, spot on. So you think back to like the 1930s, you know, between 1920 and 1940, they had the Spanish flu, they had World War One, they had the Great Depression, they had World War Two. So it was just a crazy time period. But how did they get out of it? Well, Roosevelt did the New Deal, which was essentially using a ton of resources to build infrastructure, to get people jobs. And over time and through that, they were able to to overcome that. In our case, if we were to go through those things, but with a dwindling resource base, we couldn't use that same solution. If we tried to improve our infrastructure and give people more jobs to do that, we would be taking resources from something else and just continue right back on down that catabolic collapse cycle. Yeah, and when you talk about taking resources from somewhere else, maybe this is a simplistic view, but it kind of makes me think of a Jenga tower, right? That like you pull a piece out near the bottom and you put it on the top, right? You're seeing growth, but you had to take it from somewhere and you can only do that for so long before everything falls apart. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to visualize it. And there are parts to this that we haven't really talked about yet. And so to lay out maybe the next couple of episodes, um, like I mentioned, the first eight episodes are really going to be the ones to understand if you want to have a basic knowledge of collapse. So next episode, we're going to talk about the economics of collapse. And after that, we'll talk about how politics plays a part in collapse. And then lastly, we are going to discuss in detail climate change and its role. So we'll pick up where we left off next week then and stay tuned. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.